This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Data, our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today on the show, uh, Ms. Sean Kwan. She is an internationally celebrated yoga teacher known for her impassioned activism, unique self-expression, and inspirational style of teaching. Uh, She, as I mentioned, is a social activist as well as a yoga teacher. She has done amazing things in her career, and that's what we'll get into in the show today. Uh, Sean, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Okay, Sean, let's begin. Let's go back in time to when you were an East Coast uh, girl and you first got into yoga. How did that all come about? Sure. I got into yoga back in the, in the late 80s. I was living in the, uh, in the East Village on 10th and Avenue B, and I worked at a cafe called Life Cafe. And Life was owned by a man named David Life, who would years later go on to open the Jiva Mukti Yoga Centers, mm-hmm. which is a massive mm-hmm. um, institution throughout the world, really. And Sharon Gannon, his partner, was a waitress there. And then there was also Didn't a man. That. That's yes, great. Mm-hmm, there was a man by the name of Eddie Stern, who was the delivery boy. Oh, oh Eddie, we've had and, on the show, yeah. Yeah, well, Eddie was a delivery boy at Life Cafe, and he used to ride a red bicycle with a big red basket and would just go around and deliver food. He had hair all the way down to his butt, and the three of them were very into yoga. This would be in around, when I became more aware of it was around 1986. Um, They went off to India, came back, and there were really evident changes in them, especially in David. And that was the first time I started to really learn about yoga other than what I had. You know, back in Jersey, I had a preconceived notion of what yoga was all about. And this was the first time that peers of mine and people I really loved and respected were practicing it and giving me pieces of information that made it more accessible and intrigued me. And I started practicing um, casually during that time as well. Sean, uh, when you first started practicing yoga, and, and I know in addition to yoga, you, you are uh, also involved in the more mystical aspects of, of yoga, meditation, uh, I- I- inner experience. Uh, was it something that hit you like a lightning bolt? Wow, yoga, I'm going to really go with this. Or was it something that evolved you over time and you thought, boy, this is okay. And, and then was there some point where, where you had an experience or there was some reason that uh, propelled you to take the direction you did where, you know, devoting your life to uh, to uh, spiritual uh, development and practice? Sure. You know, when I first got into it, the answer would be no. This was not spiritual for me at all. Back in the 80s, um, when I first moved to New York City, I was doing a lot of drugs and I was drinking. And my life was, you know, just like anyone who's at that age. You know, I was still a Mm -hmm. teenager. It was chaotic. It was very intense. And I practiced yoga because it made me feel better physically. You know, I just mm-hmm. felt better in my body. I had no relationship to spirit whatsoever. Actually, that part of it uh, turned me off. I was raised in a very agnostic home, uh, bordering on atheism, and I really did not connect to spirituality um, in the least. But I felt better, and I was more grounded. And in time, habits that I had formed, like drinking and doing drugs, and smoking just fell away. Um, it just didn't feel good in my body. So it wasn't like a big cathartic moment where I'm going to stop doing drugs or drinking. It just stopped feeling good. And I started to eliminate anything that didn't feel good in my body. Um, it started to leave. 
And so I just was more grounded and more connected, uh, but to myself and maybe to the world around me, but not to a sense of God. It wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles, which would have been in the, in the early 90s, probably around 92, uh, I Maybe, maybe this, yeah, right around there, I had an experience in a yoga class that was very emotional, and that had never happened to me before. I had mm-hmm. seen people in class cry and, you know, get reactive, but I never understood it. I would just kind of glare at them and, you know, think to myself, just breathe for God's sakes, you know. But I never had that, that release. One day in a yoga class, all this emotion came up for me. It made me feel quite panicked, actually. And I remember leaving the room and just having this cry in the bathroom that, like, came, like, from the, my, from my soul. And my body was shaking and all this energy was discharging. And when I went back into the yoga room, I heard everything that the yoga teacher said in a very different way. It was the same stuff that the teacher had been saying probably for, for, for years. But I had changed. Something in me had really shifted, and I was able to assimilate that information in an embodied way and the teacher was talking to my heart and I look back on it now of course I understand that my first five years of practicing yoga was very physical because I had a lot of a childhood trauma I had a lot of physiological mechanisms to create safety and control so I was reliant on my tension just to get me through life. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't conscious of any of this, just by the way. But my tension was really a part of my survival. And it took five years of very intense yoga to break the layers of tension that allowed me to connect to a more vulnerable part of myself. And when that happened, it moved me into like a, a place of openness. Uh, so I was able to hear, not from my head, but from my heart. And it was a very transformative moment, and it was a real demarcation moment as it shifted me from mm-hmm. the physical aspect of yoga into the energetic aspect, which really changed my life. Wow. Very interesting. And when in, this, in the course of this evolution did you decide to become a teacher, and, and where were you trained? I became a teacher in 1994, and I didn't expect to become a teacher. That was never my intention. I struggle with um, vertigo, and uh, there are certain triggers that can that can trigger the dizziness, um, and one is standing in front of large groups of people and having them look directly at me. Wow. And so when I was young, if that happened, things would go black on the periphery and I would get a little dizzy and, and lose my train of thought. And so the idea of speaking publicly never would have occurred to me as something that one might want to do as a career. Um, based on the, the fact that I would, you know, basically throw up and faint when yeah. that would happen. So it was Brian Kest and Matthias Rotti. Uh, Brian and I were on a hike, and he had suggested that I should do a teacher's training. And he had said, you know, there's no one in the world I'd rather see teacher, teach power yoga other than you. And I remember saying to him, like, are you crazy? And I could never teach and giving him all these reasons. And the very next morning, Mati Israti, who owned Yoga Works at the time, mm-hmm. I was a receptionist at Yoga back in the, at Yoga Works back in the '90s because that's the only way I could afford to take classes. And Mati pulled me aside, and she made the same suggestion. She said, "You really should take the teacher's training. I think you'd be an excellent teacher." And so, in the span of 24 hours, two people that I really respected and loved told me 
I'd be this amazing teacher. The problem was there was really no evidence to that except for the fact that I was strong and flexible. Mm. And what, of course, I, I've learned over the years that flexibility and strength does not a great teacher make. <laughs> There's something else that you have to be able to have. And part of that is the ability to communicate and express information in a way that's accessible. And so my first teacher's training was a disaster. I could not get up in front of the room and teach. I was so terrified that I would get Mm -hmm. dizzy and faint. And I managed to get through an entire teacher's training without actually teaching. And then I managed to get through an entire advanced teacher's training without actually physically teaching until I had to. And um, in that class was a, a, a real transformational moment because um, it was our final exam, and I knew we all had to go up to the front of the room and teach one pose, didn't know what that pose would be. My mentor, Mati, was going to be in the room watching, and I get called to teach the pose that was my nemesis, which was extended side angle, and I exactly what I was afraid would happen happened. I tried to teach it. I got dizzy, I lost my train of thought, my voice cracked, you know, everything, I turned beet red. I had to try like three different times, and all three times I choked. And finally, I turned to my teacher, Lisa Walford at that time, and said to her, can I try something different? And she shrugged, and she said, sure. And I stepped off the mat, and I entered the, the, the room itself. And once the eyes were off of me, Once I was no longer the center of attention, suddenly the words just came. And I recalled what Eric Schiffman had said to me when I did my first teacher's training. He had said, a yoga teacher is someone so filled with yoga that it overflows. And in that moment, as I stepped off the mat and entered the room and started to facilitate an experience, the words just came. And it just flowed right out of me. And I knew I was going to be a teacher. I didn't know I was going to be good. You know, good teacher requires skill. So I ended up doing five 200-hour teacher's trainings back-to-back because the first one I retained nothing, and it wasn't until the fifth one where I felt like I I had enough confidence to to be able to really take ownership of the information, but it really took me quite a while. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I know Eric and I know Lisa, so I know you had good mentors. Yes, Mm -hmm. I did. I really did. Mm -hmm. Sean, the vertigo, the dizziness. Is that something that you still struggle with, or is that something you eventually were able to overcome through yoga? No, I, I unfortunately I still struggle with it. Not to the same degree, though, and it kind of comes and goes, and it's really circumstantial. They really believe that my vertigo was triggered because I, I of a dental work that I had, had done. Wow. And it, um, it threw off my jaw, and they're tr- we're working very hard right now to do stuff within my skeleton to try to recalibrate everything, but they're pretty sure it has to do with dental work. And does it occur when you get up in front of groups like you were uh, concerned about? It it occurs in different ways, you know, dehydration, airplane rides, car Uh, rides. But sometimes, you know, I had a bout of it in front of 4,000 people fairly recently that I had to work myself through and just had to ground. A lot of it has to do with taking, getting the energy out of my head. The thing is, what I also know is as an empath, I pick up a lot of energy from people. Like, I, I'm a very quick read. I wouldn't have known this at the time. You know, this is something that just comes with experience. So when there's people looking directly at me and I'm looking directly at them, I pick up information through my eyes, especially my right eye, and I get overwhelmed by the energy. And so now that I know that, I 
don't have, it doesn't affect me in the same way as it used to before I just didn't, like anything, you know, like any energy. You learn skills on how to discharge it or deflect it or protect yourself from it. I didn't have a filter, so I just took all the energy in, and it just was very overwhelming. I, I, that, it, that doesn't happen to me anymore, and that's really because of yoga. Right. That's a, it's a great story about overcoming an obstacle. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, Sean, in, in 1998, I believe, you created the yoga program uh, at Children of the Night, a shelter that houses and educates adolescent prostitutes in the L.A. area. How, how did that uh, come about? And uh, Tell us about that. Sure. I, I wish I could say it was a very altruistic intention, my getting involved with Children of the Night, but it wasn't that way at all. I had been involved with social justice issues since New York City in, in mm-hmm. the 80s, usually related to HIV, AIDS, and uh, gay rights, as well as women rights. Those were, those were things I was very passionate about. I was a very angry activist, though, and I channeled a lot of my rage in my activism, and, of course, it led to burnout. And it was through the practice of yoga that I started to understand more about the mind-body connection and how to discharge energy in a healthier way. And so there was a moment in my life in 1988 where I got a client who was willing to pay me a ridiculous amount of money to come over to his house five days a week and teach him yoga. That had never happened to me before. And what it meant was that I was able to free up some time in my day um, instead of teaching five privates and you know, two classes a day, you know, I was able to whittle it down a little bit and make the same amount of money. And so I had free time. And I, but I also was aware that I had abundance. Abundance just came in. And I, had, I knew enough about energy that my feeling is when abundance comes in, you have to ex- extend the abundance out. Otherwise, you stop the flow of energy. And I was on a roll, and I did not want to stop the flow of energy. So I thought, well, maybe I should be of service and do something and not take money for it so that the abundance stays fluid. That's how cavalier mm-hmm. my getting back into service was. Mm. Um, but it inspired me to find an environment that I thought I could be helpful in, and that was Children of the Night. I had the, the thought that perhaps these young people could use some yoga and meditation and breathwork skills, and I felt compelled to want to offer it. What I didn't realize would happen is that in going into an environment like that, I thought I had healed the rage that I had felt internally. But instead, what I had learned, and actually learned in the practice of yoga through a theme in yoga called detachment, was that I hadn't actually dealt with it. I had just bypassed it. Mm-hmm. And with anyone who deals with trauma, detachment is just another word for dissociation. So for years, I was avoiding the rage the rage that got me on this, uh, it got me into my activism in the first place, my issues with authority, my defiance, um, all of that I thought I had dealt with, but I hadn't. And why that's important is because when I walked into Children of the Night, I met 15 young examples of my disowned self. Mm-hmm. These children were defiant, and they were enraged, and they had issues with authority, and they were rude, and no matter what I did, they were dismissive. And... I literally ran out of that place the moment that I could, this, and I vowed I would never show up again. And all this anger came up in me, projected onto those children and onto the system. And suddenly I, I just burst out into tears, and I realized who these children actually were. And I had this real glimpse that I'm not here to be of service to those kids. I'm here to, I hope, offer them something that might be useful, but I think they have something to teach me. 
And so I kept going back and noticing what would come up for me in the presence of their trauma. And at first I thought it was their rage that scared me. It was actually their grief. And when I was able to hold, really with respect, space for their grief, it allowed me to hold space for my own. And that really changed the direction of my life and the way from that point forward I approached my activism. And it's what encouraged me then to want to uh, bring the two together, yoga and social justice, transformation, purpose, and action, realizing there was really no separation and that everybody is in the situation that they're in because of systemic or ancestral or cultural or personal trauma. Mm -hmm. And until we understand our own, we will reject everyone else's. Wow. Um, Okay, this is a perfect transition, uh, Sean, to... um off the mat into the world. And uh, you know, I remember when I first heard of what you were doing, I was researching American Veda. And I, um, one of the issues that kept coming up in the context of the history of yoga and the, the uh, um, transmission of Eastern spirituality to the West was the accusation that people engaged in such practices uh, that there was a certain self-involvement and narcissism. And so when I heard of Off the Mat into the World, I, I seem to remember interviewing you about it for my book, um, and I was very impressed by um, what you were doing, and you were certainly uh, in the vanguard of something at that time. Tell us uh, about Off the Mat and how that uh, came to be, and... Um, then we can talk about where it is now. Sure. You know, uh, Off the Mat Into the World started around, I guess it's 11 years now, 10 years ago, and which is remarkable for me, like to, to imagine that it's been around the community that long. Um, what happened after Children of the Night is I started to realize that I needed, I was in a very privileged position suddenly, and, and I never would have ex- experienced myself as someone who was privileged um, because I really associated it more with, with money and not platform or authority uh, or access to information or resources. It never occurred to me at that time. But I did get a sense that I had access to information and resources and that it was only appropriate that I extended that information, that to covet it in any way meant that I was complicit in preventing others from perhaps growth or opportunity. And I started to, uh, I became the National Yoga Ambassador for Youth AIDS. Um, And that really opened my eyes to the global uh, AIDS pandemic, especially as it impacted children. And I started to think, well, I've, I've got this platform and I've got a community that seems really interested in looking outside of themselves. And I wonder what would happen if I used the platform that I had and aggregated some of this energy or money or prayer or time, what could happen? And so I started going around the country teaching spiritual activism workshops, um, looking at the integration between yoga, social justice, and action. And they were really well-received and People got very inspired, and yet I would leave feeling a little saddened because I knew that I didn't have the resources to keep the momentum going. Mm 
that it really required a broader community effort to organize a grassroots movement in the way in which I was inspired to do so. Um, and I knew that I couldn't do it. At the same time, I started raising money for, for youth aids. And in the course of a single year, I raised $300,000 selling a, a, a T-shirt. And the T-shirt I called Off the Mat Into the World, and uh, which is the name eventually that I, I transferred on to the organization. And I realized that my community trusted me. They trusted that wherever I put my money, whatever I vetted, they knew that they didn't have to. That mm-hmm. because of the relationship that was developed between me and my students, if I said, give me a dollar, they they were going to give me a dollar. They knew that that dollar was going to get spent the way in which I said. That's a lot of, you know, again, it's a, it's a responsibility, and I took that very seriously. And I just saw that there is an opportunity. There is a lot of people doing yoga, and it's an educated, altruistic, moneyed community. These are people that, for the most part, they vote. They, you know, they're, they're going out there putting their money in one area over another. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this, this is a powerful community. How do I work within this community to begin to raise awareness? Um, and so, it, as you know, I, I think a lot of this has to do with my own personal journey and fate, but an organization came along called the Engage Network. They are a grassroots movement building organization that works with people like Van Jones and um, uh, Julia Butterfly Hill. And they look for social champions who have large uh, uh, followings and audiences and who are also deeply um, immersed in both uh, action as well as spirituality. And they came to me and said, you know, we've been paying attention to what you're doing. We think you're, you're onto something here, but you need some support. And they gave me the initial seed money to develop curriculum. And that's when I w- reached out to Hala Corey and Suzanne Sterling and asked them to partnership with me. And they Mm -hmm. had skills that I didn't have. And I also wanted to create a new model of leadership, which was a feminine model rather than a horizontal model, which is patriarchal. Mm -hmm. And one that demonstrated shared power as well as consensus and and, um, things like that. So we created our first curriculum, a leadership training, which eventually, uh, I mean, we still do today. And uh, with the intention that we would train leaders, they would go back to their community and create small circles within their own hometowns or cities or states. And they would bring some of the principals back to their community. And at the end of their own trainings, they would initiate a service-related project that was local and meaningful to their environment, whether it was animal rights or or environmental justice or youth justice or, or political it didn't really matter to us, uh, they, but there were certain things that did matter in terms of having inside-out skills. So over the years, we have trained thousands and thousands of leaders. We've got small circles all over, not only in this country, but I believe in nine different countries at this point. Mm-hmm. And we also wanted to put our money where our mouth was, so we created the Global Save a Challenge. And in that, we raised uh, up to $4 million. We've done projects in eight different countries, 23 sustainable projects. Um, as well as projects here in the United States. And um, we developed Yoga Boats, which gets the yoga community out there and uh, engaged politically. And uh, we do a lot of work in the political realm, trying to raise more awareness. And um, I think what we're interested in now, most lo- most uh, recently, we've broadened our curriculum. We've brought in way more uh, activists who are really skilled whether it's racism, homophobia, transphobia, um, uh, white privilege, 
things of that nature who have academic understanding to come in and train us Mm -hmm. and train our students so that they have a broader awareness of what's happening in the world and the root causes of oppression and uh, social justice terminology and the uh, how the ways in which many of us are complicit to the very oppressions in which we're trying to uh, Mm -hmm. uh, eliminate um, because of our own ignorance. And so we're doing a lot more trainings now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sean, I, I um, wanted to... I, Phil? Yeah. Um, uh, Sean, how, wh- give us the link to yoga, philosophy, and practice to the, the work that Off the Mat does in training people. Um, you mean, the, uh, to me, there's no separation at all. Just the very idea of yoga being about interdependency, this idea that we are all one, that to me should be the the very um, the philosophy that guides all of us to make sure that that is true. That mm-hmm. everything that we're doing, we're doing it because our intention is to be in relationship with each other, with the planet, with spirit. And the thing is, we can't. Although we are all one in theory, we are not all the same. So until we understand those differences, until we understand historically the ways in which society is invested in maintaining those power dynamics that separate, being one is only, um, it's, it's, it's mythological, it's fantasy. It requires action and self-accountability to make that so. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of separation, as an activist, I look at that. Yoga means connection, um, whereas oppression and power dynamics create separation. And so we recognize that oppression can only lead to violence and devastation and and Mm -hmm. death. So if we want the end of this separation, if we want this kind of global reconciliation that leads to healing, we can't wait for our leaders to create change. We have to recognize Mm -hmm. that what happens in the world happens because it's a manifestation of our collective thoughts. Mm -hmm. So our personal work is to recognize where do we create separation or otherizing in our own personal life? Where have we invested in in supporting oppression because of our own privilege, our our own power dynamics, our own ignorance? Recognize the ways in which we've benefited from this oppression, been complicit to it, and then heal it. And if we can do this, peace is the inevitable outcome. So I think just the very languaging of yoga is the, is the philosophy that drives me to understand that there's no separation. But for me, yoga is recovery. It right. is social justice. It is environmental uh, justice. It's animal rights. Anywhere where there's separation, there needs to be yoga. Sean, so, I wanted to ask you one last question, and that is, uh, how do you balance your own spiritual practice, uh, your practice of yoga, and your social activism uh, in that, uh, obviously, you're tremendously busy organizing and doing the great work that you're doing, uh, but uh, do you also make sure that you take time every day for the practice of yoga asanas, uh, or is it the case that when you're in service to people the way you are, that uh, the, the, the practice of the asanas, of the actual physical yoga, is no longer necessary? For me, it's necessary. I mean, mm-hmm. I have seven non-negotiables that I have to practice both daily and weekly, and it's because like I said earlier, like all of us, you know, um, my tension, all of our tension is often a part of our survival and the way in which we control. And if I'm tense, 
I'm reactive. If I'm tense, I get shut down. If I'm tense, um, I can fall back into old behaviors, behaviors that I'm not really interested in perpetuating, but behaviors that are familiar, and if I'm in that trigger, feel right. And so I have to make sure that I'm doing yoga asana daily to release the tension Mm-hmm. so that I can connect to my heart, so that I can be more vulnerable, so I can be more available, so that in conflict and in crisis, I'm not reactive, but instead I'm responsive and therefore responsible to myself and to the person I'm I'm responding to. And so for me, my seven non-negotiables every day are yoga, meditation, prayer, diet, sleep. The weekly one is uh, therapy. Mm-hmm. And then the one that I suck at is play <laughs> but, but it's the one I, I keep trying to pull in uh-huh. so i'm really committed to the yoga meditation prayer sleep and diet are very easy for me uh and that's daily uh i, I won't i don't want to say it's easy it's just habit mm-hmm. um I, I can talk myself out of any one of those things <laughs> you know at any given moment <laughs> but it's a discipline that's more ingrained um therapy is very important for me to um uh, because of the amount of information that I've been given by my teachers and, and just through osmosis, I have an ability to over-understand information without actually feeling it. So I can tell you how I feel and be very committed to that emotion, but not actually feel it or process it. And this is a bypass that I see very often in the yoga community, especially mm-hmm. with teachers and scholars. Mm-hmm. And so I make sure that I work with someone each week to make sure that I'm in my feeling body, not just in my intellectual mind, and help me process some of the stuff that comes up, you know, the projection, the hype, the transference, all that stuff. Um, and then play just to allow, you know, I, I'm more serious-minded. I'm very intense. I'm very focused and driven. And um, I often find play uh, as secondary, and if, you know, even my friendships is something that some, you know, I squeeze in when I can. And the older I get, the more I'm aware that this is an essential part of my health, happiness, and wellness. And so I'm trying to increase the amount of joyfulness that I bring into my life deliberately. And, okay, speaking of joyfulness and play, we're doing this interview in the middle of August, and in a few weeks you will be one of many uh, teachers at BhaktiFest. That's right. Yeah. Tell us what appeals to you about being one of the faculty at Bhakti Fest, and do you have any time to play when you go? I, I well, <laughs> I hope I have time to play, and the reason is, and it kind of answers the, both of those questions. I'm from Los Angeles. Well, I'm not from. I'm actually from Jersey, but I live in Los Angeles the last you know 24 years or so. And a lot of the people who go to Bhakti Fest are my friends and my neighbors. Um, literally, Shiva Ray, Saul David Ray. These are, these are people that are like these, these are my fam. This is my family, but I don't get to see them very often except when we're on the road. Even though they're literally down the road from me, um, going to Bhakti Fest gives me a chance to connect with lifelong friends and uh, do what I love to do, which is to share yoga in a beautiful place. You know, dead, out in the desert. It's magical. It's very powerful. It's definitely some very strong vortices of energy in, in that area. Um, and I get to connect with people that I really love dearly um, and uh, be able to go to their classes, be able to be present to their kirtans and um, dance and play and laugh and hang out and see their kids and meet their partners or their new partners and, you know, just connect again. So Bhakti Fest is a, a real 
it's a community and it's a close community. It's it, it hasn't been uh, it's not corporatized in that way. So it mm-hmm. has a real grassroots feeling, which I always appreciate. Um, it's you know a little gritty, a little dirty around the edges being out in the desert the way that it is, and people are just really hanging out. There's not a lot of space to go and isolate the way that sometimes when we're in these big hotels, we can easily just disappear. Bhakti Fest, you're kind of there. And um, so I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for everyone who, atten- who attends. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Sean, for your time. And we'll have posted up uh, on our uh, uh, site uh, all the information about Bhakti Fest and the work you're doing. I'm sure there's people out there that would like to know more about what you're doing, and I'm sure there's people that would like to support what you're doing. So we want to give them every opportunity to do that. But uh, very inspiring to uh, talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I hope I get to see both of you at some point very soon. I hope so, too, Sean. Thank you. We're both in L.A. I'm shocked that our paths have not crossed in person, but one of these days they will. Good. I look forward to it. Thank you both. Okay. Bye.